0: Hi, everyone. Welcome to Beyond the Benchmark, the EFG podcast. Um, This is the special quarterly insight market review uh, podcast. And this uh, should be listened to in conjunction with the insight document, which you can get on the EFG website, or just reach out to us and you'll be able to get to it, Uh, or even, indeed, click the link in the uh, podcast notes. Uh, which uh, could take you there as well. So with our panel of macro experts uh, today, Daniel Murray, Paul Templeton, Joaquin Tool, Jan Luigi Mandruzato, and of course, Stefan Gerlach. So they are on this podcast and uh, will chip in. As we go through uh, the discussion, so uh, we call the insight this time a quartet of concerns. A very appealing picture, uh, Paul, right in the front. um, Thank you very um, much. (laughs) Of uh, four birds, um, birds, and a nice, nice, colourful start to the year. Uh, So let's go quickly into the overview, uh, Paul. Um, Within the sort of quartet uh, of concerns, we uh, obviously talk about financial stability over the quarter, inflation, um, the um, you know, recession concerns, as well as you know geopolitics and, and so on and so forth. But um, I think where we are from a, a macro perspective is that, and certainly the data we've seen recently, um, inflation concerns a little bit less. We obviously had the financial crisis you know, letting people to think that the Fed probably doesn't even need to do any more rate hikes, um, you know, the financial crisis that we saw with Silicon Valley Bank, Signature, and of course Credit Suisse will, um, will drive uh, disinflationary trends and, um, and, and slow down growth. Um, so the, the question now then is, you know, what are the global growth drivers to keep economic growth up versus those forces that are taking it down? And I guess this is going to be the tension over the next couple of quarters as to um, know what is going to win out um, the, between those oppo- opposing forces.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And uh, th- we we have uh, figure four, three arrows pointing up and three pointing down. Yeah. It's always good to have threes in a presentation, I've been told. And the, and the three pointing up are China reopening. And actually, interesting, if we go back just a quarter, when we were talking about that, we thought, well, yes, it's reopening, but you never know, there might be sort of a new spread of COVID and it might not work. But now it looks broadly okay. Mm. Excess savings, we've been talking about for a long time. And on our estimates, that still... Excess means above the sort of pre-pandemic trend, still look substantial. I mean, 5 trillion, and you still hear that anecdotally. People are running down their, their savings. And one new one, a, di- a slightly different take on this one, stronger investment spending. We've talked about green spending quite a lot in the past. But one that I hear a lot more about recently, and it's unfortunate in many ways, is increased defence spending. Um, Larry Summers was talking about it on a podcast the other day. Time of the Vietnam War, the US spent 10% of its GDP on defence. It's now 4%. Only eight of the 30 NATO members spend the 2% on defence. We know how much has been spent to help Ukraine already. Just restocking I mean, it's it's not a great thing to talk about, but that does you know create a lot of extra spending. It will be a boost to growth. Mm. So they're the three positives, I think, if you can describe defence spending as a positive. Um, but then set against that, um, trade fragmentation... Now, we could be careful about trade fragmentation because we've received this very interesting piece of news recently that the UK is actually somewhere in the Pacific because it has joined the Trans-Pacific Partnership. (laughs) I mean, I think a lot of school children must be a bit confused. How come the UK has joined the Trans-Pacific Partnership? But anyway, we have, and so trade is less fragmented, and that might boost UK GDP. I believe the Treasury estimates are... 0.08% 0.08% of GDP over time. So, you know, we could have sort of some help um, from that. They should, I could say they should
0: have asked ChatGPT, that would have helped them.
1: They should have asked ChatGPT, <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, and then tighter policy, well, we've talked a lot about that. Uh, and then the financial sector fragilities. Um, I think with that, you know, right now we think, oh, that's crisis over. But the one thing that I've written a little bit about in the U.S. section is when these things have blown up in the past. There's often been something a smallish event. I wouldn't describe Credit Suisse or Silicon Valley as smallish, but and that's led to sort of further problems evolving over time. And that's something that you know is at the back of my mind always with these things. And I. I The media's terrible, isn't it? Because it always brings out some terrible stories about the financial sector every time things go wrong. I mean, Terry Smith saying, I'd never invest in the banks ever because, you know, they just leverage plays on people's savings and are truly wicked institutions. And then that famous Stanford study that came out, I think just as Credit Suisse was being bought, saying loads of US banks could be vulnerable because of their exposure to commercial real estate, Mm. plus a run on an uninsured deposit so there are quite clearly still vulnerabilities out then you know you would have to be very brave to say it's all over
0: mm, no exactly we certainly one area that we need to think about and you know what's interesting and we were having a discussion a little bit earlier is that financial markets you know if you look at the shape of the yield curve if you look at um you know, fixed income rate expectations implicit in the shape is that there's some sort of crisis uh, building, and and there is an expectation that there's a crisis, where policy, be it you know, Federal Reserve or ECB or the Bank of England, is very much driven by um, not being able to forecast that uh, or not wanting to forecast that. It's probably another way. Uh, there's no upside in forecasting that um, no. I- event. So so that's where you get this sort of mismatch between market expectations and uh, and central bank expectations. Um, and, and I think that tension is quite interesting and uh, kind of led me to think a little bit about what the dollar is telling us right now. One of the things that, you know, really struck me in this crisis that we've seen over the last um, you know, few weeks is the fact that the dollar didn't rally. You know, I couldn't remember a time no. when... When you uh, had a kind of banking crisis or some sort of crisis, the dollar actually weakened, <laughs> uh, yep. uh, and I think that's quite fascinating.
1: And uh, and also recently, I mean the uh, the strength of the euro and of sterling against the dollar, admit you know, admittedly from a low level, yeah, yeah. Um, has been really quite quite surprising. I mean, you know, I, I was in. The states, of, when it was nearly one for one last September, mm. um, euro was one for one. Um, and now we're sort of quite a way above those sorts of levels. And that has been, for those two currencies against the dollar, it's been a downtrend since the global financial crisis, basically. Mm. So, mm. and, you know, in the chart that we've got on figure six in the overview, is really, in that context, it's, it's the start of a correction from arguably undervalued levels for both currencies, mm. And I think, Moe, the point you've made about European equities and European assets generally being neglected and underappreciated, I think that's changed in the first quarter to some extent as well.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because we, I think we, you know, call it quite well in Q4, um, and obviously European equities are, are up, um, you know, whatever, 16-odd percent in, in dollar yeah. terms in Q1, and... um um But what's interesting that hasn't necessarily, when I've looked at the flow data, that hasn't necessarily come through in the flow data. It's not as if people are buying tons of European equities. In fact, nothing. (laughs) Ah. (laughs) Which which to me is quite interesting because often when you see, and if you take the lows from October on European equities, they're up 50%, which is quite extraordinary. Um, But that hasn't come with people banging the table about European equities.
1: Well, now Bernard Arnault is the richest man in the world and he's ever taken, you know, <laughs> Mr. Musk. Maybe that's the sort of publicity we need for European equities. Yeah.
0: Well, exactly. And I, and I think that, that um, and that's going to quietly build. And so, you know, I don't think that the European equity trade is over, no. uh, which, uh, which some are already kind of calling it. But, uh, you know, if I saw that with tons of flow... And you know excessive optimism or bullishness, then uh, you know temper my you know expectations. But the valuations are still reasonable. Yep. Uh, and so that uh, you know certainly looks um, uh, you know interesting from an asset allocation uh, perspective. Um, so let's move over to the other side of the pond uh, and to uh, Stefan. And Stefan, we we touched a little bit earlier with Paul on this idea of um, fed policy and uh, the expected you know path from them versus what the market is telling us obviously this is uh, uh, no uh, nothing new from your perspective you've been living it with your entire career I'm quite fascinated to uh, to get your take on um, uh, you know expected paths versus market paths
2: <laughs> yeah it's really extraordinary I must say yeah At the at the last FOMC meeting, they released dot plots, and they suggested uh, that uh, the median member of the FOMC expects rates to end this year someplace north of five percent, between five and five and a quarter, whereas the market is pricing in uh, a series of cuts. From uh, I think the first cut in September in November and in, and in December. So i have seen at least three cuts this uh, this, year, this year. So it's quite a discrepancy between the two views, I must say.
0: And in terms of that expectation, obviously, um, markets anticipating some sort of crisis um, and then something will break. Obviously, central bankers will not want to make such a prediction, even though they may privately expect it. uh, uh and, and obviously, the, the financial um, sectors problems and the banking problems have been one of the catalysts for this. Um, what are your takes on on the banks, you know, in general? And is this, you know, something that we don't need to be worried about? So one way
2: of, of of explaining this difference in in views is to say exactly, or sort of just to, to uh, follow through there on on what you said so far, is that there is a divergence of views between people in the financial sector who, who do worry about the financial system and central bankers who may not uh, who may not have detected any problems yet. I mean the problem with financial stability from a central bank's perspective is that everything looks fine until it doesn't whereas financial market participants have probably a better sense of where tensions are developing slowly where the pressure points may be and and it may well be that um, that the financial markets are pricing in more of a U-turn because they are more worried uh, about the outlook for the economy because in, in a way they have a better sense of the state of financial markets. And one problem with central bankers for all the good things is that they typically have relatively little professional first-hand experience of financial markets. So they may be good at judging macroeconomic developments, but they may not have the same sense of tensions developing in financial markets the way financial market participants Uh, uh, would have. So indeed, it's quite possible that uh, the markets are more worried about the U-term, they're more worried about the state of the banking system and perhaps the financial system more more broadly. I mean, in many ways, the banking system has developed very well since the crisis in 2008. Banks hold uh, hold much more capital, they have much more liquid positions and so on. We've seen a lot of innovation in the area of regulation and so on. I think perhaps the concern is much more among institutions that are less well regulated, or perhaps not regulated uh, at, at all, uh, and and that's where the risks are, and that's where the big surprises may come from. Mm.
0: No, certainly, with uh, I think I guess signature bank cryptocurrencies, and um, and uh, you could see the regulators are really going after these companies with a vengeance. You know, some clearly look like obvious frauds. Um, <laughs> FTX and he looks like one, but uh, you know there there are and you can see they're clearly going after that, and we could argue they're a bit late. Uh, the, the horse is already bolted, uh, and they're now coming in, but um, um, but but I think that you know it's absolutely the right the right area. I think the other thing is, I think from my perspective, obviously what's driven this is the pace at which the Federal Reserve has in, increased interest rates. that has caused the problem certainly with Silicon Valley and you know you can debate risk management was certainly not their forte but um, um, you know just the pace is always gonna get people unstuck and I certainly you know this is one of the consequences of it all
2: Yeah I think this is a very good point I mean if you If you raise interest rates much more rapidly, much more dramatically than the markets are anticipating, well, there will be some institutions out there who who will find themselves, they've been wrong-footed by by Fed policy. They've positioned themselves in a way that looks extremely unfortunate given the surge in interest rates. That's exactly what happened to Silicon Valley Bank. And I think the concern is that there are other financial institutions Perhaps not in the US. Perhaps elsewhere. They also are uh, in a very awkward situation uh, uh, now. Um, so so these enormously rapid increases in interest rates, they may look very good from a monetary policy perspective, so from a from the perspective of managing uh, managing inflation and inflation expectations in the macroeconomy. But they come as a surprise to large parts of the financial system. And there is always the risk that something breaks when you move things so so rapidly. So it looks a little bit imprudent, I must say, uh, from my perspective.
0: Mm. Very interesting thoughts, um, Stefan. So let's move um, to um, the UK uh, and to Daniel. Obviously, sticking to the theme of financial institutions, um, there's a fascinating chart. Uh, Fifteen which is the financial sector importance. Obviously, we know what's happened in Switzerland with Credit Suisse, but the UK is not
3: far off in terms of economic importance. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, notable, of course, the UK is facing certain challenges from the unique situation of Brexit, but also given uh, what's gone on in the financial sector recently, notable that the UK has a very high share of uh, financial sector assets to GDP. In fact, second only to Switzerland, and um, you know, of for example, the twenty-nine globally systemically important banks, the UK has three, so overrepresented relative to um, the size of the economy in general. So, financial sector is a you know big driver of activity in the UK. So, very important what happens there. Mm.
0: I guess we kind of had our sort of crisis um, in the UK uh, back in the autumn with sort of and and uh, and the debacle that certainly created for the insurance sector, um, um, uh, and sorry, the pensions uh, uh, sector, uh, probably insurance as well. But, but what uh, what are your thoughts of kind of around that? This kind of looks like the same as Silicon Valley Bank, really, just represented in a different way.
3: Yeah, I think it's very similar. I think it just goes to show the sort of unintended consequences of uh, of rising yields and. Um, Obviously, associated decline in bond prices. You don't really know where the skeletons lie, but um, you know that there's going to be some damage out there. In the UK, it was the, the pension funds and the insurance companies, um, by virtue of the losses on um, on their government bonds. And obviously, in the US, it was unfortunately Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank that that mm-hmm. took the hit. Um, I think in the UK, you know, the lesson was you know act quickly and decisively, and um, get behind the system. Um, and Thankfully, for the time being, the issues seem to be contained within the US and, you know, hopefully that's a sign of things to come.
0: Absolutely. I think one lesson, I guess, from the GFC is that how important it is for, you know, banks, treasuries and, you know, regulators to move swiftly and quickly
3: to just backstop the system um, and not allow another Lehman type of event. Absolutely. I think, you know, so much of this is down to confidence. You know, when you get a run on a bank... It, it, confidence is key there and so in order to break that cycle of uh, outflows that um, engender further uh, lack of confidence in the system it's really important that the authorities step behind it and, and break that cycle mm.
0: no, absolutely and as I said so far that that willingness is uh, certainly coming across um, in terms of the the other element I guess is the UK do you think the the inflation forecasts that um, the uh,
3: the Bank of England has put out there is credible. <laughs> it, 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 very interesting question, Mose I think, um, you know, first of all, it's notable that for decades, the UK has been more inflation prone than a lot of other economies, whether it's, uh, you know, whether it was in the 70s uh, or even, you know, during the sort of lower inflation periods of the 1990s, 2000, 2010s, um, through those periods... Um, Of course, inflation moved up and down, but in the UK, it tended to be higher than in the US and Europe. So that's an interesting backdrop. It's also notable that um, the Bank of England was forecasting a global recession just a few months ago and and a UK recession that they expected to last for a couple of years. And that forecast now looks to have been overly pessimistic. At the same time, the bank is expecting um, a very sharp decline in inflation this year. So let's hope that whilst they... uh, Know, got it wrong on growth, which is surprise to the upside. Let's hope that they're better on their inflation outlook. Mm, yeah, absolutely, I think uh, Rishi Sunak will certainly be hoping
0: <laughs> that they're right as well. I think uh, you know it's quite interesting how um, his uh, his popularity has started to kind of creep creep upwards. Uh, so far, he seems to be sensible. He needs help from the economy.
3: Well, well his timing may be good in terms of um, the election. <laughs> exactly,
0: yeah, yeah. Well, he's got a bit of time to try and make yeah. as much uh, as much gains as possible. And uh, it, probably still very much an underdog, but at least he'll be a little bit closer than they looked like six months ago. Um, thanks, Daniel. So let's move on to Europe and um, to um, Switzerland. And I guess... Um, for us um, uh, Brits, it, it is all about French reforms <laughs> uh, or the lack thereof when it comes to at least uh, uh, pensions. Um, what's uh, what's your thoughts on um, uh, on sort of the, obviously French reforms the banking sector, which we've done you know a bit of a uh, you know a deeper dive on, um, and um, uh, and you know what the sort of outcomes will be. And as I say, some of these European growth numbers, you know, do look reasonable.
4: Oh, yes. I mean, the the Eurozone economy proved more resilient than it was feared only only a few months ago and managed to continue to grow. And indicators suggest that also at the beginning of 2023, GDP growth was, uh, say, decent. Uh, At the same time, there are, of course, risks. And one uh, that has emerged uh, recently is that linked to the banking sector and the potential further tightening of uh, financing conditions to the private sector on top of what the, the, the tightening implemented by the ECB would have already um, you know, uh, um, uh, added to, uh, to uh, the, the financing conditions overall. Uh, so there is a risk that uh, the remainder of 2023 will not be as brilliant as uh, first quarter of, of the year. Uh, at the same time, uh, uh, reforms like the the, sw- the the French pension reform is, I think, a typical situation where a short-term pain for long-term gains uh, because uh, the protests are having uh, an impact, a negative one, of course, on, on activity in France. And, that, and we'll see how long they last. But uh, it is clear that uh, a pension system when you retire 62 is not uh, really... Helpful and not probably fully sustainable for the public sector, uh, particularly when debt to GDP has already risen a lot, also on the back of COVID. So these are necessary steps. Of course, the, 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 the French pension reform is just one of the many that are still needed in the eurozone. But uh, hopefully, they will be, uh, you know, tackled one by one, and that will be beneficial to the overall growth potential of, of the area.
0: I think the other sort of key point is um, I mean, you can sometimes forget how big French banks are as a, as a percentage of economy. And that's always, you know, a bit, a big concern. And you know, generally people feel always quite bullish about French, uh, French banks. Um, there's a hell of a lot of assets there.
4: <laughs> yes, that, that's a risk, of course, because uh, there would be indeed quite hard. To bail out uh, from from the public sector, should uh, uh, some you know uh, financial incident happen? At the same time, in Europe, it looks like uh, supervisory activity from the ECB, particularly on large banks, have been quite effective. And despite uh, the concern that has risen on on markets, uh, if you look at uh, you know the banks' balance sheet, uh, they seem to be relatively okay against most of the risks. Uh, that would that would normally be facing.
0: Mm, absolutely. So let's uh, um, get over the uh, Alps into Switzerland, and um, and uh, you know look a bit of a, uh, a deeper dive. Obviously, the Swiss National Bank uh, obviously increased interest rates, as one would expect it, and promptly had to deal with a with a uh, with a banking crisis, um, uh, and. You know, the, I guess the, the famous weekend. How do you think they're thinking about this? Um, you know, at the moment, given how big, you know, Credit Suisse in this case, you know, is and and its impact on the economy. Um, and obviously, both those banks are, are just prevalent in everyday society within within Switzerland.
4: The the, the Swiss National Bank think that uh, they did what they. Could to stabilize the situation, and probably they hope that um, uh, you know things are indeed stabilize and, and no more interventions are needed. At the same time, they probably are aware of the risks to uh, the domestic economy stemming from a tightening financing conditions, and uh, so that you know they will have to balance uh, that risk on which of course would be particularly uh, evident on growth, and the evidence that inflation remains way above uh, the the target range of of 0 to 2%. And the tolerance for high inflation in Switzerland is uh, very low. So there is a, you know, more pressure on the SMB to act, although inflation in Switzerland is much lower than elsewhere, say the eurozone, but still the perception, it is as if it is much higher than it should be. And that keeps the pressure on the SMB to act. And, and, and that may result eventually in one other, possibly smaller rate increase in June, if inflation, as looks likely, remains, although moderating, higher than 2%.
0: And uh, I guess um, a, a slight aside. Obviously, um, how does it feel to the man on the street with respect to the um, you know the banking crisis and Credit Suisse in particular? What's the what's the mood? It seems like a lot of people are angry, um, yeah, but uh, you know, it'd be interesting to to hear your perspective.
4: Well, absolutely, and uh, the, the public opinion has definitely not taken uh, the overall developments well. Uh, possibly because they are not fully aware of what could have been uh, alternative scenario, which could have been even worse, uh, particularly for you know, well, not not in the immediate, uh, but in in the coming quarters and and, uh, and possibly years. Uh, another big uh, issue is uh, if. Uh, Uh, what happened to Credit Suisse will eventually change the uh, international perception of Switzerland as a safe haven. And uh, uh, I remember that uh, similar uh, concerns were prevalent after UBS uh, was actually bailed out by the Swiss National Bank and the federal government after the collapse of Lehman Brothers uh, some 15 years ago. And uh, they proved... uh, uh, well, overstated to say the least. Uh, Switzerland remained uh, attractive uh, to uh, a lot of foreign capital. The Swiss franc has, has appreciated steadily over the past 15 years or so. And uh, um, so we'll see if uh, this time around is different, but chances are that uh, the, the safe haven status of Switzerland will not really change much after the events.
0: Great. Thank you. Thanks for that. So let's move on to Asia. Uh, and to Daniel again, and um, you know, keeping with this theme of credit risk, uh, is the one that has always been around for the last sort of 10 or 15 years. Has been in the Chinese um, banking sector and credit risk that may uh, lie there, which obviously observers, you know, outside of China, just think are very very opaque.
3: Yeah, exactly. We we don't get the sort of full picture as to what goes on in China, but we do sort of get snippets of information and of course one of the stress points we know is the housing sector where there's been a sharp extension of credit and I think you know what's interesting is that the authorities have used that in the past as a tool to sort of stimulate the economy and act in a counter trend way to try to offset some slower periods of growth they've actively pushed the credit channels and means to try to smooth the cycle and obviously um, when you get uh, an excessive up of debt then there's Two ways of dealing with it. You either have a sort of short, sharp shock or you deal with it over many years. And I think the Chinese authorities, they've chosen the path to try to um, gently deflate that over a number of years rather than over for the short, sharp shock. But the sort of quid pro quo is that that acts as a drag on growth over a longer period of time.
0: Mm. Uh, and you know, Japan
3: is obviously the classic example of something
0: that's taken several decades to fix.
3: Well, that's right. I don't think anybody thought when Japan's property will burst in the early 90s that uh, it was going to take three or four decades to sort out, but it looks like it has taken that long. <laughs> yeah. um, I think it is notable that, you know, the Japanese corporate sector now, after such a long period, looks generally to be in much better shape. Mm. And um, I think things such as the weaker yen we saw last year should have a lagged benefit on corporate earnings, which... Actually, I think the prospects that look quite reasonable for Japan in that context.
0: No, absolutely. It's only one of our calls uh, for this year. Last year, Japan's stock market did very well, but she lost it and some on the currency, which obviously led to a, a, a relatively negative outcome. So let's move on to Latin America. And, um, and I guess uh, um, a recent uh, podcast we had on Brazil. So um, Joaquin, any... Thoughts on
5: inflation and rates? Yeah, so uh, recently yeah, you you had a chat with uh, with a former official of, of the Brazilian government, and he was raising the the points of some of the opportunities that, that Brazil has. Of course, um, there's also a lot of challenges for for the Brazilian economy, like some of the uh, the weaker growth for for this year, the inflation levels that. Uh, are now starting to to come down but uh, the the economic authorities there need to to grapple with the the difference between um uh, trying to promote uh, growth without um, forgetting about the, some of the long-term reforms that, that need to be uh, applied, and it's something that is uh, is happening across the continent, across different countries. They're they're facing similar problems, and you were just talking about the reforms in France on the pension system. It's the same happening in in plenty uh, countries in in, uh, in Latin America as well. Um, in in the case of of Brazil uh, specifically, uh, they th- there's two big reforms that need to be uh, tackled during during this period. The first one is a, is a tax reform, um, and the next one is a administrative reform of the of the whole uh, government with the differences of, of across the different states. Um, and for for that, i would say that this has generated a lot of uncertainty in in markets and in Brazilian assets, which have shown a high risk premium. Uh, particularly associated with an incoming government uh, and the uncertainties around the, the, n- the new government. For example, um, the, the new fiscal rule that was proposed last week, uh, which now sets uh, two targets for, um, for for spending, which now the government needs to meet a certain uh, primary surplus, and they also will, will cap the um, the increase in in spending by just 70% of uh, of the revenue. And therefore, that, that's why tax reform becomes such a crucial um, factor for for the new government if they want to keep increasing and an, um, uh, fiscal spending and try to support uh, support growth. So, um, a, quite a challenging year for for Brazil. I shared some of the views that Mansueto Almeida was saying about the, the opportunities that lie here, that that lie there. Um, and then on the, the, the other big uh, country, let's say, that will be affected this year, which we, d- we normally don't don't speak much about, is uh, is Argentina. Um, Argentina will, will also have an election later this year. And we know that election years in, in Argentina are never very quiet. And so <laughs> we should expect a bit of fireworks uh, uh, around, firstly about the, the first round of the elections in, in May. Um, and the country uh, having the opportunity to 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 be there recently and 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 see uh, in situ some of the distortions that some of these uh, capital controls um, have have had in in the economy in in argentina uh, it, it's significant uh, that the impact this has, and it will be very difficult to remove these these controls and and these differ- different different um, uh, exchange rates. Uh, let's say these uh, dual exchange rates uh, and special um, and subsidized rates for specific sectors to try to promote growth. This is whole uh, a whole let's say mess that will take time to to disentangle, and therefore I don't think this will be a, a one-off. Uh, policy and it has to be very gradual. So far, Argentina has been focusing on trying to meet the demands from the IMF um, and, let's say, more targeting the specific numbers rather than tar- targeting the, the specific uh, reforms. So um, expect a bit of... Um, uncertainty around Argentina still this year.
0: We have a bit of fun about the soy and Malbec dollars, yes. um, which are, are quite interesting. Uh, yeah. Is that part of the IMF program? <laughs> no, no. That's
5: that, that's something, there's a joke that says that when there's a need in Argentina, there's a specific FX rate for you. So whoever, uh, whoever lobbies best uh, w- would have a, a specific uh, exchange rate uh, created for them. Okay. And that's why... There's the soy dollar, the Malbec dollar, the Coldplay dollar, the Netflix dollar. <laughs> um, so yeah, whatever there's a need, there's a change, right. Okay.
0: No, and, and Argentinian beef, absolutely as well. Mm-hmm. Um we uh, also touch upon sort of I guess a more long term yeah. um element to this in terms of cooperation between different countries. I mean, how real is that and and you know, is it significant?
5: In, in terms of the the, the opportunities that say for for environmental policies for example and and, and, and stuff like that that yeah. is yeah. that that is becoming more and more prevalent uh, across the uh, across the continent uh, I think it's very easy, there, there's very, uh, it's a lot of low-hanging fruit for, for some of these policies to, to, to be applied there when there's a history of very, very slow progress on on, on climate policies, for example. Uh, it's it's a country that's super rich on, on resources and there is not a clear, um, or unified, let's say, policy in terms of how, how you can tackle these long-term environmental problems there. So there's a lot to be done. There's a lot of opportunities there. And um, we see that in some of our, uh, in some of the funds that, that we manage, that are companies that are doing very good work there. Uh, it's mostly coming from the private sector and not that much from, from governments.
0: Great, thank you. Uh, so uh, last but not least, we, we come to the special focus that we always have uh, in the Insight. And, and this time round, we did a bit of a, a focus on global discord uh, and this was a result of um, uh, of a book uh, written by uh, Sapul Tucker uh, on a global discord and we had an excellent presentation uh, hosted by Stefan so Stefan thank you very much for uh, organizing it was a it was a very good evening um, and uh, and uh, you know we, we tried to sort of summarize uh, the key elements of the book as Kind of, rather dense book but um but actually probably not as dense as previous ones <laughs> from 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 paul um but um, paul you you talk about uh, you know four scenarios or um or you so summarize four scenarios from the book
1: well he does yes, yes. Uh, a, a lingering okay. status quo superpower struggle a new cold war and a completely reshaped world order and when he was writing the book, he thought we were between one and two. So, lingering status quo was superpower struggle. Now it's more between two and three, a superpower struggle and a new Cold War. And, of course, that doesn't make you feel sort of very comfortable. And the relationship, obviously, that he concentrates on, I'm saying obviously, but maybe not obvious to everybody, is between China and the U.S., I think this is a big question of our time and this is a magisterial sort of book. It's a, it's a big book. It's a m- work of immense scholarship. It's not the easiest book to read. Especially don't try to read it in bed because you could do yourself some sort of injury because it weighs <laughs> about 3 kilos, I think. Um, but, and he looks for some historic parallels between the current you know, for the current tensions between China and the US. He looks at the long eighteenth century. I'd never heard of the long eighteenth century before, but the uh, the long eighteenth century lasted from sixteen eighty nine to eighteen fifteen. It was a conflict between France uh, and Britain, and it was a a period of just continued conflict and you know, recurrent sort of wars and, and tensions and was ended with something called the Concert of Europe, a scheme of cooperation between the sort of different parties, sort of in Europe. And I suppose many of us think, oh, wouldn't it be good if that type of arrangement came to pass to sort out the current sort of problems? Uh, But what I took from Paul's comments was that he's somewhat sceptical about that happening, and there's a long discourse about international organizations and to what extent they can be effective in this. And he talks in particular about the World Trade Organization. And the, the one dispute that the U.S. brought with China, you know, are subsidies uh, for um, state-owned enterprises state subsidies or not? And the World Trade Organization argued that they, you know, they weren't state subsidies, these were state-owned enterprises which were getting subsidies and Paul says well that's just he describes that decision as ridiculous mm. that you can't have this sort of super body WTO uh, ruling on international disputes and there's a discussion about whether or not we might be able to reform them but I certainly come away being sort of rather worried about whether that can, can, can ever happen um, And so that's slightly concerning. I suppose the other aspect is that might China just become a lot more like America and the West? Mm -hmm. And Paul's not very optimistic about that. Uh, He, again, points to this document, which I was not aware of, and it's the, um, the the three no's document uh, 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 of China. No to all sorts of things that we think might take China into a more sort of Western type of orientation, sort of freedom of speech, freedom of the media, um, uh, civic society, sort of questioning authority and so on. Um, and that, I don't know, that in a sense makes me sort of concerned. So when we've talked... Um, you know, for some years now, about this fragmentation of the world and the tripolar region and separating into different blocks. That's obviously a concern that is reinforced by reading this book. Although there's one rather more encouraging aspect. He discusses the West. When we talk about the West, I'm not sure we're entirely clear what we mean, mm. but he would put in the West uh, Japan and South Korea. And he talks a lot about India and Indonesia. And I think if you think they have essentially Western values, um, democracies of different sort of flavours with our type of sort of, you know, Western type of approach to uh, the market and the economy and state control, then that probably is more encouraging. I don't know if Stefan wants to add anything else
2: that's a very good summary uh, of of the book. I think uh, I think you written somewhere here is really captures the essence of it extremely well. I mean, to me, as you said, this is a very this is an intellectually very ambitious book. It contains a mixture of political history and political philosophy, legal theory, and so on. And he he sort of bites off some topics that I think are are so large that most people don't really tackle them. I think most people in university don't dare to tackle them because they span several areas. But in terms of a market, of financial markets, it's precisely these big um, forces that, that do impact on, on markets. I mean, the whole issue of the integration of China into the global economy, what that has done for a number of things, business like inflation, and so on and so forth, but also the fact that China has a rising Power um, will be a big player in geopolitics, and that on its own adds additional um, forces impacting on financial markets, such as the risk of tensions in in, in Asia, the risk of a possible inv- inv- invasion of Taiwan, and so on and so forth. It's really a an extraordinary piece of work that that spans. Uh, a number, a number of uh, a number of areas. Um, I thought um, as Paul summarized there, I thought this whole discussion of the four scenarios and how we sort of have moved from the lingering status quo and a, and a, and the superpower struggles to more of a um, sort of balance between the superpower struggle and perhaps a new cold war i think it's a is a large part of what we have worried about i think or what financial markets have been worrying about in the last in the last decade or so plainly the rise of china of china in international relations and china becoming more assertive has had a big impact on on the pricing of risk uh, As it become increasingly clear that that things could really uh, go astray, and 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 China is willing to pay to play uh, sort of hard politics, which of course has such a globally important and large economy, it's in some sense it was very well positioned to do, and perhaps even in you know, entitled to do.
0: Excellent. I think that was a very interesting discussion. Um, I will uh, point to a. Very interesting podcast that we had with uh, Jens Larsen from um, uh, from Eurasia Group on geoeconomics, and this was a topic that very much uh, uh, came about within that podcast. So certainly point you to that as well. Uh, so uh, we'll wrap it up there. Again, gentlemen, thank you very much for your inputs. Uh, very interesting discussion as always. I uh, hope uh, the listeners. Also found it very interesting. Of course, if you have any questions, any thoughts, we are available. Just send us an email and we'll happily uh, answer. Uh, So with that, um, we'll wrap up. Thank you very much, everybody, and have a good week or fortnight ahead. Thank you.